Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Happy Amblin, a podcast on the Waffle Press, a retrospective series where we go over the film starring Adam Sandler and directed by Steven Spielberg. On this episode, our second official episode, we're talking about Duel, a television movie of the week back in 1971, uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, his first quote-unquote official feature-length film. Um, I don't know whether or not he'd classify it as his first I'm your host, Diego Crespo. With me to help me answer these questions is Matt Garingo. That's me. Matt, do you think he qualifies it? For the purposes of our discussion, it's his first. All right, there you go. Scientific answer. So go fuck yourself, Steve. That attracted me more than anything else. The unseen is always more frightening than what you throw in the audience's face. Back in 1971, Matt, I don't know if you know this. I mean, you probably do because you're technically like 100 years old. Uh, TV movies of the week were very popular. Wait a minute. And... Wait a minute. <laughs> Fuck you. We're, we're, I'm your age, idiot. <laughs> yeah, but still. You sound like a grumpy old man sometimes, so I have to oh, like, go balance it out. Fuck your fucking bullshit. You, all right. I, when you were describing how we were going to start this thing, I didn't know you were going to start it out by insulting me. <laughs> it but, was like uh, a, a loving insult. It was a tough love. Sure. <laughs> hey, Matt, you sound like a belligerent old fuck. <laughs> well, those are your words, not mine. You sound like you're out of touch with what's going on, you fucking moron. <laughs> oh, well, please, tell me more that. about fucking Duel. Uh, I was just wondering if you knew why TV movies of the week were so popular back then. No, I told you before we started recording that I don't. I know, that's why I was supposed to lead us into it. Don't act like this is fucking... <laughs> oh, some spontaneous discussion between <laughs> fucking two friends. Jackass. No, I do not... I don't know why this was a popular thing, but it was. I mean... Fuck Columbo, which we just did. We did an episode of Columbo. was basically a movie a week. Like... They were long enough to fill, like, 90 minutes or two hours of television. Funnily enough, Steven Spielberg actually got the job uh, for directing Duel by bringing in a rough cut of the Columbo pilot Murder by the Book to writer-producer George Eckstein of The Untouchables, The Fugitive, and The Invaders, a bunch of shows I only know about in passing. <laughs> fugitive something. Uh, well, I've seen the Untouchables and the Fugitive adaptations when they made the jump to feature films in the 80s and 90s, and I like those a lot. Here's the crazy thing about, like, to bring it back to the movie of the week shit and, like, older television, we, we live in this era, or at least we just passed through the era of what's been called the golden age of television. I think some people mark it as it starts with The Sopranos and ends with Breaking Bad. Like, that's what people go, like, that's the golden age of television. <laughs> and frankly, I think people just ignore most of the history of television. Because <laughs> I think what happened was, I think a lot of people that write about media right now, I think they grew up with, like, the 80s and 90s, and there was a real, like, sameness to a lot of television of that era. Not that there weren't, you know, there were standouts, like the Larry Sanders show or Gary Shandling show, both Gary Shandling projects, I guess. <laughs> um, Seinfeld was a game changer at the time, you know? Not that there's anything wrong with that. They completely ignore that, like, basically, 
television used to just be like mini movies every week. <laughs> like shows like Gunsmoke or The Fugitive, they were they were like movies almost every week. Basic setup, you knew the plot, you got it. I think westerns kind of died just because western TV shows exhausted every single plot you could do <laughs> with a western. I just think it's an era that gets overlooked and then we go like, oh, because of moral ambiguity, ambiguity that's why we have the golden age of television. And I don't necessarily agree with that yeah I'm, I'm with you on that one i i don't i don't care how much you're trying to be like breaking bad i fucking love breaking bad but mm. for like five years like we're just getting out of it now i think there were a bunch of things that are like oh this is gonna be the next breaking bad the next this the next that and i was just like please i i don't want it anymore <laughs> i have breaking bad well i think what we learned i think one thing that we've learned and that studios never seem to learn is that you can't be the next TV show like you can't be the next loss like I remember there was that like period where it was like up oh, the next loss like three shows are trying to be the next loss and like all yeah. of them got cancelled after one season cause it's like the, well the audience that likes lost they got lost they don't want another lost and cause that's the thing I think every show that's successful seems to be there's not a lot of sameness these days in terms of what is very popular in an interview with Edgar Wright for Empire Magazine uh, the full interview is available online by the way for free so I recommend everyone go check it out cause it's pretty nifty uh, Spielberg referred to his film ed education as on the job training cause he didn't you know go to film school and um, so whenever he would like get a job directing a television episode he he said he was rarely ever asked to return for the series uh, because his visual style was, like, so dissonant from what, like, the norm at the time was, you know, just, like, for coverage. Well, I think it was it was a mixture of that, and he talks about, I've heard him talk a lot in interviews where he says the crews were, like, so, so old on those films, like, on those TV shows, they, like, resented him being, like, the young guy coming in. Yeah, well, I think Night Gallery... Yeah, he talked about Night was... Gallery being a particular nightmare. Yeah, like, the crew had to stand up for him. Or the, mm -hmm. the cast had to stand up for him, and at one point, one of the actors... It, it might not be Night Gallery. I might have just fucked this up, but in one of the shows he worked on, one of the lead actors asked Steven Spielberg to um, if he could please like leave the set for just a minute. It wasn't him. He just wanted to talk to the crew. And then when he came back five minutes later, the crew had like their heads down in their hands, and like everything ran smoothly after that. But you are right about him not getting like return work, because at this time, he was known as... Um... I think Scheinberg's Folly is what they called him, after Sid Scheinberg is the one who signed the contract with Spielberg. Um, he was considered, like, you know, because they signed him for, like, a unprecedented contract, and then he wasn't really doing much. And everyone was like, oh, is this kid a flake? Like, is it not going anywhere? And then, eventually, he, he got dual. Uh, actually, I should also mention that his secretary at the time uh, brought him a Playboy magazine he was like laughing about it and she's like no no read the story in there and the story was duel uh of course written by richard matheson and it just it all everything kind of like fell into place after that like he, he had to like really rally for the job but uh yeah the, the movie kind of took off running after that it was filmed in like 10 or 11 days he had a 10 day shoot and it took like 13 which was which caused some problems with the studio yeah they never uh, want you to go over Mm -hmm. But George Eckstein really vouched for him, and he wasn't, like, the singular, like, most powerful producer, but he had enough weight with, I think, ABC at the time to uh, to really vouch for him and, like, to back his plays and stuff like that, so. 
thank thank him as much as Spielberg and his secretary for making Duel a reality. And Richard Matheson. For those who don't know, uh, I Am Legend is like my favorite book ever. And this is, uh, I think, the second time we've brought up Matheson on this. Yeah, I, I really like like his work, but I Am Legend is the one that like changed my life. Do you remember the other episode we brought him up on? I don't. Jaws 3. Holy fuck. He was like supposed to write, he tried to write one of the early drafts of it. Aww. And, yeah, and he talked about how it was a nightmare. Well, th- this worked out much better. Matheson, his stuff's great. People don't talk about him as much, I guess. A lot of people know I Am Legend, but they don't know like his other work as much. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did some of the best Twilight Zone episodes, which is what attracted Spielberg to the story initially. And Matheson, um, he wrote this. He tried to get this story done for like every show he worked on throughout the 60s because he came up with the idea in 61. Um, he was driving back from like a golf outing and like a giant tanker truck like tailgated him for like miles and was like really intimidating and really scary. And it all happened on the same day that Kennedy was assassinated. <laughs> Well, so it like stuck in his head is like what was going through that guy's head, and he couldn't get it made for like any of the shows. So then he's like, "Fuck it!" He wrote a short story for Playboy, and then people got interested in doing like, "Hey, this could be a TV movie of the week." And so he wrote the screenplay for it. That's the weirdest like backwards way of getting something made ever. I'm not, I know. That's obviously not his fault, but it's like that's. <laughs> I mean, hey, it worked out better this way, but that's that's ridiculous at that point. Dennis Weaver plays David Mann. Uh, Spielberg cast him after seeing him in Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. Yeah, well, he was recommended because the, the producer was one of, had written a couple episodes of Gunsmoke, which Dennis Weaver had been on. And at the time, I think Dennis Weaver was known for McLeod, which was like a, um, a police procedural type drama. Um, but when the producer showed him Dennis Weaver, Spielberg was like, oh, that's the guy from Touch of Evil. And they're like, nah, he's Gunsmoke. <laughs> it's like, no, no. And Spielberg, because if you've seen Touch of Evil, he plays the hotel manager, I think. And, like, he gets really, like, haywire and crazy at certain points in that movie. And Spielberg wanted similar emotions out of the character um, for Duel. I've actually never seen Touch of Evil. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, You're in for a treat. All right. That's when Orson Welles started being like, I'm fat for the movie. (laughs) I didn't just happen to put on all this weight. And everyone was like, okay, Orson. It's like sh- just drinking Palmas on wine by the <laughs> bottle off camera. Ah, the touch Wah. of evil. Neville. <laughs> Where is that executive? He is so fucking like... <laughs> His voice now is like... Rah, rah, rah. It's like Jeff Bridges as fucking Rooster Cogburn <laughs> like, like decades before. I can't even understand him. You really can't. Uh, the 18-wheeler in Duel uh, was always known for its excellence. What if the truck in Duel talked and it was Orson Welles? Oh, it's someone edit that in. It's ah. like every time the, the, the truck just like tailgates them. Ah. 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 Champagne has always been celebrated with its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson. Oh, so I guess I should mention the plot. Duel is about uh, a man on the road who pisses off an 18-wheeler truck that looks like it came out of the depth of hell. Because <laughs> yes. it's like 
falling apart. In it every looks like instance. it drove out of the landscape. <laughs> yeah, which I mean, great production design. Oh yeah, on on that shit because this was made for like half a million dollars, maybe even less. Nothing. He put if you look like he put a fucking like railroad track on the front of the truck to like give it like a more of like an image like like this giant like monster of a machine. Yeah, it, it feels almost like primal and greasy and sweaty. And it really does. Like... It fe- there's a lot of shots in this where it feels almost like a monster like waiting. You know? Yeah, it's, it's often been referred to as like this is not like some mind blowing comparison. But, like, Jaws on land and, like... Well, Spielberg himself yeah. makes that comparison very directly. Yeah, like, you totally see, like, not, like, a template, but, like, the the baby steps to Jaws. Which is fucking crazy, because this movie's really good. And it's also, I, the one thing I love, I always thought, like, in my mind, I thought that, like, the multiple license plates on the front of the truck was, like, a legal thing. But, like, the headcanon of it, I always thought, like, oh, maybe that's the other cars he destroyed. Turns out that's what Spielberg was intending with all those license plates. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm so glad, because that's exactly what I thought. But they never address it, which makes it even cooler. That's the other thing. Uh, one thing, and I guess Matheson stressed this in his original script, is that you never see the driver of the truck. So, like, the truck is basically the character. That's that's just what makes it, like, one of those things that makes it so cool is you never really see the face of evil in this. Even though you're always seeing the truck. Then there's that great sequence in the diner where it almost shifts like genre gears. Mm. And it it boils over into like a paranoia thriller. Where you're trying to figure out which one of these guys is the driver, which one's the driver. And you never find out. And so like it's almost a diversion into a different kind of movie. But then it folds it back right into the movie we were watching. And I don't know. That was really impressive to me. Because that could have fallen apart. Let me ask you this though. Like, for us, I think, not knowing who the driver is and not really getting an explanation as to why he's doing this, like, you can kind of put together, like, oh, is he pissed off or is he just waiting for something like this to happen? Like, we, but we never really know. For us, that's what makes, like, a movie like this really cool. But I know tons of people who, if I, like, was like, yeah, man, the cool thing is you never see the truck driver, they'd be like, ah, oh, fuck that. <laughs> like, what's th- what's up with that? We always talk about on this show with our, our guests, not even like the most controversial movies, just like specifically about The Last Jedi. Yeah, <laughs> like I guess. People don't know what they want until they get it, or they don't know what they need until they get it. I think in this case more, people really don't like ambiguity. Like, they really don't like not being told exactly how to feel. And I mean, that can definitely be applied to The Last Jedi. <laughs> and I also think that's why... These those fucking Avengers movies are so popular because they make sure everyone is feeling the exact same emotion at the exact same time. So I don't know, man. I just it, it's one of those things that just bugs me as a person. You know, it it does bug me too. But like, because I've been doing a lot more history on this retrospective than like a lot of the other ones, and just like listening to how people talk about certain movies and. The, the group of filmmakers that Spielberg hung around with, uh, he called them the movie brats, um, which I really like. But uh, just the the way that people read them for the time, like obviously the industry is totally different place now. It's got a whole other bunch of new different set of problems. But the reactions that some of them are getting for like their work, it, it feels like we're getting distant echoes of it now with certain filmmakers. 
like style versus substance or like mm-hmm. what what qualifies as like even a movie at this point. Uh, all this ridiculous shit. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that I don't know. There's always going to be people that just don't get it or or at least like don't they don't want that out of something and they out of like a movie and they don't want to try and like understand anything more than just that wasn't for them. But they'll never be able to say that because they always need to be like, right. I guess you see art as maybe something that's trying to be like, as something you can be successful over, mm. you know, you can be victorious over. Like, I got it. Ha I think there's a mix of like the winning, like feeling like you're winning and also like art is just something to be consumed. Like it's not like there's no inherent value to it. Because, like, you know, you watch movies and, like, you point out very basic things in them. And you're like, oh, this guy, you know, this movie's about how he doesn't have a great relationship with his father. And people will be like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and it's like, what? It's it, like, it's, it couldn't be more obvious. <laughs> and, like, I don't, I don't even want to act like I'm, like, a, you know, I never feel like a genius or anything. I just feel like I'm a guy watching a movie. And, but people don't. Like, not only do they not pick up on it, they reject the idea of even looking for it. Well, because, I mean, how often do you hear, like, leave politics out of the movies? Like, that that has a broader sentiment towards it, too, but then that kind of feeds into something else, I think, that's a, a genuine problem in how people talk about art, where it's yeah. like, it's just a movie, man, you know? Like, how often is that said? We're just not good at talking about anything anymore. <laughs> Or ever were. I guess the real answer is we were never good at talking about these things. But I, th- I think, honestly, I think things can improve. And I think slowly but surely we might be getting there. Sure. I don't know. I, I, I'm a little more optimistic uh, with the eventual like collapse of the industry. I think we need like every system in this country to collapse. Well, yeah. Which we is unfortunate because, frankly, I think if that does happen, I'm one of the people that ain't making it through. <laughs> <laughs> the anarchy that'll is sure to come. I feel like I'm like the first one down. I'm first guy dead in a horror movie, but I think we're kind of at that point. No, you're you're the Hudson in Alien, so you're gonna make it to the end, but it's not gonna go well for you. Yeah, but Hudson so. dies like begging for his life. That doesn't make me feel much better. Yeah, but he he lasts to like the, the third act. That's pretty. good. I don't want to. I don't want to make it almost to the end. <laughs> that ain't fair, man. Don't don't hate the player. Hate the game. Fuck everyone. <laughs> It is genuinely a frightening truck. Like, even today, I would say, like, just the sound design on this truck, like, how it'll, like, ramp up, like, it can be, like, intimidating. Yeah, and it it always looks like it's strung together by, like, nothing but, like, like, this ferociousness to, like, kill Dennis Weaver. Yeah. (laughs) Because, like, it does look like it's falling apart at times, but it's not. Well, yeah, one thing I think is really cool about it is the way they shot it, because, you know, a truck really can't get as fast as the truck gets in this movie. Yeah, it's, like, pushing over 100 at one point, I think. Yeah, yeah. But but it's really, they did a really smart job of how they framed the truck, like, with certain lenses and at certain angles, where as long as the background, if you just have the background at a different angle than the truck, it looks like the truck is flying. When really it's going maybe 30 miles per hour in some of these scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, which it just, it makes it like 
to see something that big seemingly moving that fast, it's really intimidating. Uh, this might be a weird pull, but for those curious about why Michael Bay movies always feel like they're moving oh, yeah, very quickly, yeah. uh, he shoots on like a telephoto lens and uh, that like compresses the space in a fun way in, in short bursts. Uh, maybe not for two hours and 45 minutes, but uh, and that, that's that's kind of like what's going on here in a more minute scale and a, a much better scale, I'd argue. And Spielberg had to fight because a big part of it that makes it work is that there's a lot of like actual filming on the road in this. Like it's pretty much all that. Mm-hmm. And Spielberg had to fight a studio that wanted him to like do a couple of like exterior shots and then film most of it on a soundstage. Where, you know, they would, I don't know what the process is called, but where they would combine, like, you know, background with a car driving. And that always looks fake. Yeah, like, that, that would have sucked. It never looks good. Like, even in movies I like. I think the the example I always think of, if, you, if anyone out there's ever seen It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, there's, like, it'll cut from, like, real outdoor car chases to then close-ups of the actors, and, like, the difference is, like, incredible. And Spielberg had to, like, really push, like, he had to prove that he could stay on track for the first few days before they would let him go out and film outdoors. And you can see, you can see echoes of Jaws in how he's filming this, where he's on a different car filming these cars a lot of the time, um, which is similar to how he shot the boat in Jaws from a different boat. It was significantly harder on Jaws, but it, it's similar in idea. This isn't mind-blowing or anything like that, but it kind of goes to show Spielberg's efficiency because once he was on the road, how he used, like, multiple camera setups facing, like, opposite directions. So, like, when they finish going one direction, they turn around and get footage of them coming in another direction. So it's like the chase is continuing, and they could splice that footage in, like, wherever they needed to in post-production because otherwise there's, like, no way of making a 10-day schedule, a schedule that he already did not make. Yes. It's also one of those movies where if you're a continuity nut, there's, like, tons of continuity errors because it's just impossible for there not to be. <laughs> like, nothing really adds up. He's fi- he filmed over the same, like, several miles of road, like, for 10 days. <laughs> and just knew, like, slightly changing the angle would make it look completely different. And it's it, it's really... Uh, the fact that he was able to think about that, because I think a lot of this was also... He talks about how... He had like three weeks to edit all this footage together and it took like five editors to do it. And they basically made up entire sequences in editing. Um, The last sequence where he gets up to like 100 miles per hour and then like hits that wall right before going up to the cliffside where the climax is. Like they just made that entire scene out of like everything they had shot. They just combined moments from everything they had filmed up to that point. And wow. it's also, it, it says a lot that it never really feels repetitive in that way, because it easily could have felt that way. Yeah, that that's a, a big surprise revisiting this for the first time since I was like, I don't know, maybe 10, maybe a little older. Uh, it's every little, I guess, set piece in a way, um, even if it doesn't like aggressively move like the... the I mean, there's such a little plot to this movie, and that's why it's kind of great. Uh, it doesn't move everything forward. It, it always feels different and fresh. Towards the end, I do admit, I, I think it gets a little repetitive. might be a little too long. But, like, just by, like, 
a minute or two at most. Like I, I only caught myself thinking that once in the entire like hour and twenty nine minute production. Well, it might be. A, I might be. This might be a controversial take, but I really do not like the scene with the school bus. Um, which was a reshoot to make this longer for theaters when this jumped from television to movie theaters. Um, that just feels like such a cul-de-sac to me. Um, like it's, it's a fine moment, and there's like some decent tension, but at that point, I'm like, we already know the deal. <laughs> and I kinda, it kind of loses me for a little bit. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I have a bigger problem with it as you do, and I think the scene moves nicely. I just don't understand because up to that point, there's this fun blend of like, is it something borderline supernatural that's being planted in our heads about this truck? Or is it just a dude who's like really fucking pissed and an asshole who's collecting license plates from across the country? Um, And then the sequence ends with the truck pushing the kids out to to help kickstart the school bus again. I don't understand. I don't completely understand what we're supposed to well, get. I, there's a that. whole thing in this. I got, let's go back to the beginning. Um, first of all, I really like the opening credits to this movie. Where it's just the radio and like the car noises just as you slowly leave the city and head out into the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, just this really, I don't know, it just gives this really good feeling. Because I mean, I've lived a lot of places where if you drive like 20 minutes in a certain direction, you're suddenly in the middle of nowhere. And you can run into crazy shit out there. I've had like two incidences like Duel. Oh my god. <laughs> on the road over the years, yeah. I had a guy chase me like all the way through Pennsylvania. Driving through Pennsylvania <laughs> to New York once. And like, and then like he got off at the exact same exit I got off on and like like literally tried to drive me off the road. And it was, it was crazy. What the fuck? Yeah, I that's have, never happened to me. I have oh no god. idea what... That, that, I think that guy's problem was that he kept passing me and then like he'd get stuck somewhere and I kept passing him. It was one of those for like a little bit like he was like leapfrogging each other and then he started like getting really aggressive towards me and I'll admit I got a little aggressive back. Oh, I didn't get aggressive. I just I started like noticing when he was like getting ready to pass me so I would make it a little harder. So yeah, I'm not innocent in that situation. <laughs> what am I gonna do? I'm Italian. We, we do <laughs> that stupid doesn't mean shit. anything. Yeah, it does. You know Italians. I don't. I, we can't, I know we, you and Gene, and that's we, it. We can't let shit go, man. How do you not know that? I don't know. I don't think anyone can let anything go. <laughs> yeah, other people can. I've known people that can let shit go. Italians just aren't one of them. Uh, where do you know where this was filmed? Really quick. Oh, I actually have no fucking idea. I should have looked that up. Okay, because this totally looks like Southwest America. Like, I, I've driven a lot um, on the way to Vegas, like past San Diego to Mexico. Uh, it looks very familiar. I, I don't recognize any like landmark or anything like that because the movie does take place in the middle of nowhere for the majority of its run. Um, but it does like I know that feeling of driving out into a place like that. And no, I've not been in a road rage situation like that, Matt. I think but, it was. Uh, I think it was California. I would completely buy into that. Yeah, I think this was because I mean that one. This, the school bus sequence is that famous tunnel that's been used in like a dozen movies. Bring it back. It's a Mad 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 World. There's a great scene using that tunnel. 
Everyone should see it's a mad, 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 mad world. I still have to watch Creep Show. Oh yeah, um, see that before because I'm kind of joking about. I love Mad, 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 Mad World, but like, it's the weirdest fucking comedy ever made. Uh, but to go back to to your point about the opening, uh, Spielberg cut like 50 percent of the dialogue out of the script, and he said that he would cut out more if he could. And I love the opening, and I love just the long stretches of like tense silence in the later parts of the film. And what a great decision because it totally adds like this. This whole other, like, isolating atmosphere to everything, you know? Uh, I, I just, I, I was really fond of that. I wish more thrillers, like, standalone thrillers kind of had that. You get the sense that he was also forced to put in some more dialogue at some point. Yeah, there's a little bit of a Harrison Ford and Blade Runner situation going on with some of the ADR. Although I heard Spielberg say somewhere that, like, that was, they did that beforehand, like... Like, him and Dennis Weaver, like, worked it up, but I don't know if that's true. Mm. Spielberg has a lot of those stories where you hear him and you're like, that doesn't sound true. But a big part of him, he goes out there and there's all this weird stuff in this about, like, emasculation, especially early on. Um, if you're listening to the radio, there's this weird, like, prank phone call that a radio station is doing where they're like, the guy's like, calls up the census and he's like look I'm confused about the head of the household question because my wife actually does all the work and I actually stay at home and I actually like staying at home but I don't want people to know that I'm not the head of the household this is really weird moment and then we get that once we get to the first gas station there's that conversation he has with his wife do you remember that yeah that really threw me off uh, also that moment is a reshoot. Yeah. But when she was like, oh, I thought he was going to just rape me in front of the party. And I was yeah. like, whoa, what? Well, hold whoa, on. We just... definitely have to give some more context to that. <laughs> um, he calls up his wife from the gas station. First of all, he has this conversation with the, the fucking attendant. And the guy's like, you're the boss. And he, Dennis Weaver is like, not in my house, I'm not. <laughs> like, so it's like, okay. And he calls up his wife, and she he's, like, trying to apologize about some fight that must have gone down. And we, we figure out that, I guess, one of the neighbors was, like, macking on his wife or something. And she goes, she basically she says, he practically raped me in front of everyone. The point of conflict is that man didn't stand up for his wife in some way. And he's like, well, what do you want me to do, punch him? And she's like, no. But, like, the implying is that, like, deep down she did want him to, like, step up and be a man. She wanted man to be a man. You get, and there's like this whole element of him, you know, the whole movie he feels out of place out here. Uh, after the one chase where the truck, like the first moments where you realize this truck is actually trying to harm him and he shoots off the road and hits that fence and all those people are like, mister, what happened? And he's like, oh, like he's like, he's like wincing from pain. And everyone's like, ah, don't worry, it's just a whiplash. And they're, like, almost making fun of him. Yeah. Like, it's really... I don't know. It's a really interesting... Where it ends makes it even more interesting, in my opinion. But, like, this examination of, like, what it feels like to be a man, like, feeling emasculated. Yeah, no, I I, I think the movie leaning into that actually might make it stronger. Like... You know, there's always derision about reshoots. Like, are they, you know, reshoots to help benefit the movie, like, for the better whole? Or are they reshoots because 
someone's getting cold feet about something, you know? Uh, I think generally these kind of might have helped then, given what I know. Because I've never seen it without those reshoots, obviously, right? Um, I, I think they, they might, like, encompass a, a stronger, like, thematic point for the movie. Well, the, what's interesting is I read somewhere that Spielberg was like, because this is one of those movies that when it came out, it was, like, huge in Europe. Um, I guess he did some press conference over there, and he was, like, contending with these, like, very, like, aggressive critics that, no, the movie's just a thriller. There's no deeper themes to it. And it's like, it couldn't be more on the cert, like, obvious about what is going on here. And what makes it even weirder is that those reshoots just double down on the themes. And then he's like, nope, there's nothing more to it. Which is just one of those things... That's a criticism that gets thrown at Spielberg a lot. Of, like, he sometimes doesn't even know what his movies are about. And I still don't really know how much he knows, you know? I think I'm mm-hmm. hoping that's something we discover going through this series more. I, I'm willing to bet there's a drastic sh- – I mean there is a pretty drastic shift in the kind of movies he makes already, uh, which I'm really excited to get into because I, I think we can pinpoint exactly when that happens. Um, but two, I think – and this is not a director I think is nearly as good as Spielberg. But hearing comments like that really are almost verbatim on what people say about J.J. Abrams. And I again, let me reiterate that. I do not think J.J. Abrams is nearly as good as Spielberg. Yeah. But I could see... I could see why the conversation around him tends to be more interesting than the actual, like, ideas in his films. Because only a couple of them might actually have ones worth talking about. Some points to J.J. In my opinion, J.J. is another director who has only gotten better. Like, he didn't start with, like, a peak... You know, mm-hmm. um, he has perhaps the worst Mission Impossible under his belt. I don't know. It's hard. What What's worse than three? Two might not work, but it's also awesome. Yeah. Uh, I think three doesn't get the credit it deserves. The problem is all the other ones are also really fucking great. You know who almost did three? Joe Carnahan. No. Well, yes, but who else? Michael Mann. What the fuck? <laughs> yes. What? Tom Cruise really wanted Michael Mann to do Mission Impossible 3. Oh my god. Oh, the, the timeline is ruined. <laughs> Forever. This ruined everything. We're changing the retrospective. We're going to Michael Mann. This is... Oh my god. Not to, not to shock you, but Michael Mann will come up again during this retrospective. That doesn't su- surprise me at all. You but... will be surprised. When? <laughs> okay. I'm guaranteeing right now. Okay, well, even when we're off off microphone, don't tell me. I won't. I will not. I'm, I'm okay. definitely saving that one because okay, I have oh to get my that God, reaction. That's, but. that's fucking brutal. That's uh, I don't like Mission Impossible 3 anymore. I've defended it so hard, but now it's over. I mean, I just destroyed your ass. Oh, my God. What you, the fuck? Fuck you Chris lost, McQuarrie. You lost this duel. I mean, to give it to J.J., I think, honestly, I think fucking Rise of Skywalker will be the test for me. If he can land that movie, I'll probably forgive him forever. <laughs> well, I already, I, I have already forgiven him for Into Darkness, because Force Awakens, like, who the fuck knew he had that in him? I know, Force Awakens is way too good, considering. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be, if, 
but if Rise of Skywalker like fucks everything up, it's gonna be. I'll be very disappointed. You know, I'm not even gonna say anything because I don't want to jinx anything. Moving on. I'm so goddamn nervous. That's the problem. If it doesn't work out, we'll always have cats. Yep. Here we go. Ha ha. What if it was a cat driving the truck the whole time? James Corden in the dual remake. Oh my god. <laughs> Here we go. Ha-ha. Here we go. Ha ha. Running him off the road. Here we go. We could talk about you talked about it briefly with uh, the scene at the restaurant, but we get an early Spielberg oneer in that scene. Uh, and it's a really good one too, of just walking through the whole restaurant and then the reveal at the end of the truck, you know. Mm-hmm. And I man, that restaurant honestly, that scene is as intense as any of the scenes on the road because it's not just like intense because who is the driver; it's also like. All these guys in here think he's a loser. <laughs> and you really get into his head of like... Because he, he really feels like a small guy throughout most of this movie. Um, which I just I just find it so interesting. Because Spielberg doesn't really lean into like super masculinity that often. Like even with the Indiana Jones movies, there's more of like a like fun to that. Whereas this is like, no, sometimes men gotta rise to the occasion. Like, there's a difference between a real man and a fake man. Yeah, that's very different for him. Yeah, this one has two N's. Oh, yeah. So he's the most man. Except for Michael Mann. Oh, yeah, of course. Gotta keep fucking berating everyone in his crew. Oh, yeah, yelling at everyone. Michael Mann is the truck in this movie, and the car. (laughs) Dennis Weaver is the crew. That's probably true. It's pretty. Yeah, that is pretty accurate, honestly. Come back to me, Michael Mann. Oh, yeah. Someone give him a chance to waste even more money. See, that's his, like, anti-capitalist art, like, going on full throttle. He's burning millions from Universal. Even, even with the budget, the schedule, um, Spielberg has said that he always had to go in to his television episodes because of those tight schedules, knowing, like, what shots he needed. Probably not, like, every little ounce of it, just because, one, that is not reality. That's not how movies work. Like, storyboarding helps, but, you know, at the end of the day, you're going you're gonna to leave stuff. He did, he did storyboard a lot of this movie, apparently. The, the, the shot composition, the, the way he gets, like, in between the cars, it feels like at times. Like, it's, it's very, very impressive stuff. If you want to know how to do a chase scene... There are a couple movies you should watch because, one, I think car chases are generally pretty boring. And here's a whole movie about it being done about as well as it could be. Yeah, it's about – it's this, The Road Warrior, and Raising Arizona. Those are the three you got to watch. And then, I guess, Death Proof, maybe. Oh, yeah, Death Proof is – yeah. Yeah, that's that, true. The, the final chase in Death Proof. Say what you will about that movie, but that last chase is fantastic. I, I like I like Death Proof a lot. I know, but that's the one where everyone's like they feel comfortable saying that's the bad Tarantino one. Oh yeah, but that's the one. That's because it stars like a bunch of women. That's why. Yeah, isn't it? It's weird that that's the one where everyone was like, these people talk too much. <laughs> yeah, it's like huh. Honestly, I I really remember from that time a lot of the criticism of that movie was these women are talking too much, and I'm like, it's a fucking Tarantino movie. Whether or not there's an argument to be made about is do women talk like that? Oh, I've heard yeah. that argument made, but 
a lot of the criticism just be like women shouldn't have long conversation mm-hmm. scenes. I mean, people are barely turning around on Jackie Brown because that's like basically a, a hangout movie for like a lot of it. Well, I've never hated Jackie Brown, so I was shocked when I found that that was like it was not well received. You know, by like by yeah. like the p- average person. I think critics really liked it. But yeah, Ebert, I think. Uh, said that that was the one that made him officially give like the stamp of approval to Tarantino. Yeah, where it was like more than just like pastiche or whatever. Well, because him and Siskel famously gave a negative review to Reservoir Dogs, and they even when when Pulp Fiction came out and they like liked it so much, they did like a full like half hour special on Pulp Fiction. <laughs> but part of it they used to justify their negative review of Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Oh, God. Which I find really See, funny. I, I love that, but I never want to do that. That's why I'm trying not to talk about, like, certain movies anymore. I'm like, I just have nothing to add. Well, the other, one, the other one is that Ebert, like, famously gave, like, one star to Blue Velvet. And, like, was, like, said David Lynch should be in jail. <laughs> like, he really hated it. And, like, and it's, like, never, ba- never backed down from that one for, like, years. And then, like, he, he kind of used the Mulholland Drive review to be like, you know what, I, I can forgive David Lynch. Well, because if you don't like Mulholland Drive, you know, like, at that point, it's like, what are you even watching movies for? That seems to be the one where it's like, everyone can get on board with that one, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe some people still can't. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's still a David Lynch movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I wouldn't show it to, like, my godparents. There was a fucking... I, we had a Halloween here one year where... um. You know, family wants to watch a horror movie, and oh, no. I had to sit through like ninety minutes of them not being able to pick a horror movie, <laughs> and I just got frustrated at some point. I was like, "Let's watch Mulholland Drive," <laughs> and so everyone was angry at me by the end of the night. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why you got to stick with the Diego recommendations, like *Strangers Pray at Night*, the underrated 2018 film. Oh yeah, by Johannes Roberts. I guess I'll watch that, and you got to watch Creep Show. Okay, it, I, it's probably not going to be as good as Creep Show, but it's like a solid ass eighty minute little slasher movie. Who knows? So tool. Well, yeah, any, I'm waiting to see if you wanted to go anywhere else, or if we just wanted to go right to the climax. Uh, oh, I just really want to touch on like the poor lady with all like the desert animals. Oh uh, yeah, that's a oh that's the best scene in the movie. <laughs> it's it's sad but it's like funny um and as someone who has driven out to like these like deserted areas of southern california i can 100 percent confirm that places like that exist everywhere and i love them but i you know i'm, I'm petrified of spiders so <laughs> like the spider shot got me more than the snake shot and that was a real rattlesnake so well, I just love that. Wrong with me. I just love that extra element of not only is this truck like now actively trying to kill you, we're also going to throw in all these poisonous animals. Yeah, and this woman, and it's like the woman, just yelling in the background, like my snakes, gotta get my snakes. It's, like, it's so ridiculous, and it kind of really goes to show like how good Spielberg is at like choreographing the the driving and like the geography because look 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 at what the situation is mm. on the side of the road every once in a while he hops into a place to stop to help someone out get some water or just hang out for a second before he gets tossed back onto the road he keeps trying to find a way out of this 
he's basically trying to avoid the confrontation and the truck will not let him out. The truck will not let him avoid the fight that has to come. But in this one with the, the this sequence with the animals and the spiders and the shit, um, he could basically run anywhere. And the truck's chasing him around, just like around the phone booth, which he just plowed through, uh, crashing into all these animal cages and like containers. And it, it looks kind of ridiculous, but it's also like awesome and horrifying. And like he could technically just like run into the dirt like dunes and everything like that and be okay. But also, you know, of course, it's like how long could he last up there or whatever. And the sequence just would be way more boring. Yeah. But also, he never really like what I think one thing that's interesting is Dennis Weaver never really like he he doesn't try to leave the road, you know? Mm-hmm. Like he keeps convincing himself to go back on, which is I just find interesting about his character. Um for a guy that's like he's trying to avoid a fight, but he's also not backing down. It's like that weird conflict. Mm-hmm. And it eventually leads to the final showdown. Which is it reminded me of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It did, yeah. It does, yeah. Same. I mean, this this whole movie, I think, kind of feels like Spielberg's version of that. Like you kind of get the same nastiness, uh, or may, maybe not the same. There's a little bit where the score is. The score was actually by the uh, the guy who did, I think, a lot of the early Columbo episodes. Hey. So Spielberg just brought him over. Um, the score at times kind of sounds like generic score. But at other times, it'll get, like, really intense. And there will also be, like, a mix of, like, the score and just, like, industrial noises. Because that's what I always think about with Texas Chainsaw is just that, like, just the sound of all the machinery just clang- clanging together. Mm-hmm. And this, at the end, it's just nothing but truck noises, like, half this movie. <laughs> and it's terrifying. I mean, the other comparison I could think of for, like, a, a car-based horror movie is, like, Christine. Mm-hmm. Which is not nearly as, like, vicious, I guess, like, physically. And Christine has its moments. I mean, I love Christine, but I'm, I'm saying, like, uh, the way the, the car sounds and stuff yeah. like that. You know, it's, it's, the car makes it sound scarier than it probably would be, as opposed to in Duel when the truck is just, like, this roving pile of, like, death metal. Yeah, there's something about, in the Christine, it's, like, more, it's definitely has more of, like, a supernatural element to it that like you know not just in the story but in feeling um mm-hmm. also you've have you seen the car no possessed car that kills people no that's a I? really good one but it's also a little different than this because that car looks like it's out of a horror movie um oh, okay like it, it feels well, like i mean to be fair duel that one this one does kind of look yeah like but that this too. feels like this feels like a creature that was like unearthed <laughs> like not something that was made for a movie or something uh, but there's that. I'm trying to think of the other like car-based horror films. There's Maximum Overdrive. One thing I gotta say though about Stephen King, just real quick, he describes car wrecks better than any other writer. Like he really gets into like, no, this is what would happen if a car slammed into your body. Which is crazy because he was writing a lot of that stuff before he actually ended up getting hit by a van. Oh God. So I think he may be like. You know, not to get too weird, but if you tap into the dark forces that much, <laughs> maybe it comes back to bite you. And then I, the other car horror movie or truck horror movie I can think of is like, uh, what's that, Joyride, which J.J. Abrams wrote. 
Hey. Hey. Which is very clearly him trying to do like, oh, here's my version of Duel. Um, which explains who the truck driver is and what he's doing. Ooh. Eh, you know. It's not that bad. It's Honestly, it's got its moments. I think what sells it is the guy who played Buffalo Bill is the voice of the truck driver. Oh, okay, never mind. Best movie ever. He keeps, he keeps going on the radio. Candy cane. This, I'll never, that's very creepy. <laughs> Check it out. Uh, but the final showdown is uh, the stuff of, like, nightmares. I, I don't know why, but that was really frightening to me. Just, uh, it, I caught myself actually, like, laughing from excitement. <laughs> like, just a quick, like, ha! Like, I was so into the movie by that point. But it's also just, like, I don't know, the, the image of the truck is, is scares the shit out of me. Mm. I guess because I've seen, like, so many of those kind of trucks, too. Was that, um, I think as an audience, we are thinking for a lot of the movie, like, how do we get out of this? You know? Mm-hmm. And the movie finally goes, like, the only way out of it, you have to defeat the truck, which you know is impossible. <laughs> so I think that's what adds to, like, the intensity. Oh, something else I think that, like, this is, like, Spielberg being, like, really good at his job, but also not subtle in the slightest. Because uh, there's so many telephone lines and poles and stuff like that. Uh, they kind of resemble crosses, you know? So it kind of looks like a deserted graveyard more than a highway. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Well, there's a lot of just the desert scenery that kind of... Again, that's why I think the truck kind of has this look of, like, it's part of the surroundings. Like, it's not just this truck coming after Dennis Weaver. It's like the entire desert is trying to kill him. Mm-hmm. Um... It just takes on such a mythic, almost mythical quality without actually going there. Yeah, and I, I wish more movies had the freedom to do that. Because I, I really like the feel of movies like that. And again, I just think it's one of those things where studios push against it and then like general audiences get confused. Yeah, I, I definitely could see that. I'm trying to think, like, what's... Uh... Yeah, this is going to sound weird. Mandy is just full-on mythic yes. at some point. Mandy from 2018, uh, a movie I really love. But um, that kind of taps into something similar, I think. Like, again, it's full-on just supernatural, basically, at one point. Yeah. Well, I um, think the other one I think – I've been thinking about Us a lot lately. Ooh, that's a good one. Because that's a movie that, like, straight up tells you at one point, this isn't real. This is a fairy tale. You know? And then so <laughs> and, but, like, and people are still like, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, audiences very much can't wrap their heads around it. I don't know because that's that, – that's, I just don't get how audiences aren't – they can't handle that. Uh, I I blame it on lack of like proper education in the arts. Like I don't I don't blame it on people for not being interested. Honestly, I, I'll I'll put a little bit on people for not being interested, but you know that's just like a broad complaint. Yeah, I guess and, like, we just have a culture that, that doesn't it, yeah. value art. I, you know what? I'm willing to bet it's an American thing, though. Um, uh, maybe like more more so than other places. I guess. Um, but we seem to live in such a like capitalist culture that unless you're producing something people don't know why it exists oh god like every once in a while you see those comments like well you know like if if uh we didn't get the the marvel movies with the fox movies then i'd be against the merger yeah i've been seeing a lot of that lately where it's like well you know then who don't even release new mutants because it's not part of the marvel stuff and it's like like why (laughs) Like, that's really disheartening to me. It's so weird. We're just all cogs in this fucking nightmare machine. 
<laughs> it, it is. It really is. I don't get how hard, like, you know, I think one of the first lessons you get taught as a child is that there's more to life than money. And then people seem to forget that at some point. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's because literally everything in our society tries to beat that out of you. Yeah. But, yeah, this isn't... Things aren't good, Diego. I don't know if you've noticed. No, no but maybe we have to take one out of the uh, Dennis Weaver's playbook and just toss capitalism off a cliff until it dies a slow, painful death. We have to destroy this machine. Yeah, exactly. It won't blow up, but its long or its prolonged death will be much more satisfying. That slow death of the truck is just the coolest shit. I'm sorry, like that's oh, like not so a fucking great. Not an in-depth observation, but it's just awesome. Like in the original scripts, uh, Matheson had written that the the truck would explode, and Spielberg and producer Greg Epstein or George Epstein. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> It's really weird the producer of this guy (laughs) (laughs) died under mysterious circumstances while in his cell. I also scream before I'm about to commit suicide. Uh, Yeah, you know know how people people always scream and beg for their life right before they commit suicide? (laughs) Listen, I just do what people tell me to do. They give me 20 bucks to point a camera in a different direction. I don't ask questions. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but Spielberg and <laughs> producer George X, fuck you. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Spielberg and producer Jimmy. <laughs> you know, okay, okay. you know, Diego. No. Do you think Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone? <laughs> <laughs> Spielberg and producer George Eckstein really uh, rallied to to make the film not end with an explosion because Spielberg believed that the longer death sequence of the truck with like the the pieces falling apart the the wheels slowly stop turning and the the blood dripping from the unseen truck driver would be much more impactful and memorable to the audience and I'm very glad he did that because I think an explosion would be immediately satisfying. And I don't think it would detract anything from the film, but I I do think this is like this pushes it over the edge to being something like really worth remembering all the way through. And I think the thing, if we haven't pointed out yet, um, there's the sound effect when the truck goes off the cliff. Um, it is yes. a it is a dinosaur roar um, taken from the, I believe taken from like the land of unknown or something like that. Some fucking B movie no one remembers. Spielberg would later use the exact same sound effect in Jaws when the shark dies to be like, oh, see, they're related in some way. I really like that. It's just, that might be a little pretentious. Like, if, if a director did that today, I'd probably turn my nose up a little bit, you know? We're going to talk more about it later, but there's a, Spielberg had a lot of those pretensions in the 70s. <laughs> Of, like, doing weird references like that that he just he doesn't really do now. Um, I think now he's, like, he really likes to distance himself from his other work. Whereas back then he seemed to be, like, nah, man, I'm just dropping hits. <laughs> and he still directed Ready Player One. So... Yep. That's, what, that's, 
the weirdest one. Oh god. I mean, even Spielberg, you know, needs a paycheck. I don't know. That's not true. That's that's like objectively not true. <laughs> so Duel, it's a great movie. Yeah. I mean, not not I guess. I mean, that's you know, sometimes after these are like, "Yep, that was a movie." No, Duel's the shit. I I think Duel should should be making the rounds as like uh in revival theaters more often cuz I would love to watch this on the big screen. I would love I would love to see this with a crowd. Yeah. This is one I'd really like to see. Double feature it with Jaws. That would be fucking great. Yeah, that'd be interesting. But yeah, no, no. This is this is a great yeah. one. I'm interested in like pairing um, up random movies right now, I guess. So Oh yeah, I love doing that too, honestly. Yeah, it, it's fun. Maybe we'll just make a list of like random double features that I mm. think are cool. You got well. You always got. You can't. It's always boring to be like same director, same actor, double features. You have to find like really weird choices. Well, yeah, but like sometimes I want to pair up like Manhunter with Thief, and then go into Heat. Yeah, but that's not fun. Yes, it is for me. Yeah, but this it's is if just you, for me. If you're gonna do that marathon, all his movies don't fucking just. You, you got to find somewhere. It's like, what is Heat kind of like? And then you you do that. Well, Heat has the protagonist of Thief and Manhunter in two separate roles. Listen, you fuck. You know I'm right. No, I don't agree at all. Yeah. Hannah and Macaulay are the characters from Heat and Thief. Yeah, but I don't give a fuck. Yeah, well, I do. You know, but that's not how double features should work. Well, it's a triple feature. Yeah, but like, I have a science to double features. Okay, well, what's your science? You, just, you can't do same director, you can't do same actor. Okay. That's the rule. Okay. Well, what would you pair up Duel with? Um, That's how we're ending this episode now. Yeah, I gotta think. Yeah. Um, Duel with Duel? The obvious choice is just like another truck movie, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's probably like too obvious. Duel in Texas Chainsaw would be really interesting. Fuck it. I should have said it first. God damn it. That's, that's an interesting one. Um, A bad... One that's bad because the movie's not very good is like Duel and the Mangler, a very late era Toby Hooper movie. Uh, I never saw that one. You don't really need to. Aww. Um, I'm trying to think of movies where it's like one-on-one showdowns. Like, what's a other? What's another movie like that? There's, there's so few. Oh, okay. Duel and the Shallows. That's that's an interesting choice. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting one. About the same runtime. Basically, same premise. Mm. One location, just one happens to be on an entire open road. The other one, on a rock. But I want something that also like looks at like that masculinity too. You know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I could. I could. I could see where you're going. With I also kind of uh, thought of. Not... I thought of Straw Dogs, but that's a little intense. Yeah. Uh. I gotta be honest. Never been a fan, but okay. maybe I need to rewatch it. Um. No, you're probably. I mean, I'm just a Peckinpah fan. I, I like Peckinpah, but yeah, it's Straw, I think that one's a little much for me. Straw though. Dogs is one of the like hardest to watch movies. It's one yeah. of those movies that it's one of those movies where it's like it's deliberately trying to poke at you in like every way and like upset you before that mm-hmm. became like a trendy thing, you know? Yeah, and like, I mean, I like certain movies like that. Like Last Puppet Master is like bred in a lab to be like aren't you like triggered and i'm like no but i'm enjoying what you're doing so yeah what, i'll keep I, watching i think of like lars von trier a little bit oh yeah like uh, the fucking the guy who did in, enter the void 
Oh yeah, oh yeah, I can't I can't with uh, Gaspar Noé. Yeah, um I like I like his DP though. His cinematographer is amazing. But to me it's like, you know, Sam Peckinpah already did this. That's that's my <laughs> I guess that's my thing. Oh, you know, all right, here's a here might be a good one. Duel and the Hills Have Eyes. Original or remake? I think you could do either. Okay. Yeah, they're about the same quality. They're, they're the same. I think uh the remake actually is pretty strong. I think you could watch the remake as its own thing. And for Wes Craven fans, it's like further reading. Yeah. Like the original one, you know? Yeah, yeah. That just has a really good setup. Hills Have Eyes. I'm surprised they haven't remade that again, honestly. Because I, I would actually be kind of... Like, I know we don't need any more. But, like, let's say the industry was, like, well off. And I didn't have to worry about that. That's one I'd be like, yeah, I could see someone doing... Taking another swing at that. You we know? seem to be remaking all the 80s horror right now. Yeah. We seem to have suddenly gotten there. We're slowly finding out that there's like a handful of really great ones, and then there's like a steep drop off. Well, what I, what I always find amazing is there's tons of '80s horror where it's like there's a great premise that just does is not executed very well, and then they literally just like they're like, "Hey, let's remove the great premise <laughs> and just make just take the title and make something even more generic." Looking at you, Pet Cemetery remake. Oh, it's so boring. Yeah. And it it ruins... I'm not getting into that. Duel's great. Watch Duel if you want a great horror movie. Hey, Duel Pet Cemetery. There's a truck in Pet Cemetery. I hate you. I don't want to be buried in no pet no. cemetery. This movie needs... This movie needs the Ramones. The Ramones... To, this, the music of recklessness... IMDb Pro, get their agent's number. Ramones, all of you who are still alive. I don't even... I think they're all dead. Oh, never mind. <laughs> I, think, I think maybe one of the Ramones is still alive. Oh, no. <laughs> we can't do that rock and roll high school reboot. You can find me at EmperorOTN1 at Twitter.com. And you can find me at Twitter.com slash the Diego Crespo. Check out the Waffle Press on... YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and check out the Patreon because Matt and I will be doing this for the next year plus of our lives. Yes. Uh, we'll be concluding with West Side Story, uh, and we could use the support, and it would be great to be able to pay people for their, their time and and discussions. Yes, it would. <laughs> yes. So uh, help, help us out there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. This has been Happy Amblin, and we have been professionally unprofessional. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence.